This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Beth Malden, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Andrew Sobinet, who is an associate professor in the Department of French and Francophone Studies at Georgetown University. His new book is Generation Stalin, French Writers, the Fatherland, and the Cult of Personality. Andrew, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this topic? So, yeah, I'd be happy to. So, um, but, uh, and I'm delighted to be here. So thank you again. Um, so I am a, a original, I'm a French studies scholar. I, I, I did my PhD in, in French literature, but I've always had a, an interest in the ways in which um, literature expresses politics. And this is going back to my undergraduate years, um, Back to my senior honors thesis, um, and my my first book was on prison narratives, and one of the reasons I uh, enjoyed doing that topic so much was that it allowed me to to look at um, not only the form of the narratives but also the ways in which they um, they expressed various socio political viewpoints and could be used as a as a springboard to study history and things like that. So um, and and alongside that project, that that first book project, I uh, did a lot of work on on the Vichy period. So 1940 to 1944 in France, and um, and slowly, slowly became more and more interested uh, in the in the mid century, uh, just because it was just because of the turbulence, the the, the broad, the, the the big ideological clashes of the of the mid century really fascinate me. Um, and so after I finished my first book and decided I wanted to move on from Vichy because been, there's been so much scholarship done, and I reference this in, in the in Generation Stalin, so much very good scholarship done on and you know um, on the Vichy era that I. I wanted to try to do something that was a little bit different. And so I um, initially was going to do a book on extremism, more broadly speaking. This was back in 2009 when I was exploring topics. And you can see how long it took me to get this out. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so I, I decided to start by looking at the extreme left since I knew the extreme right so well from all the work on Vichy. And as I, in any, you know, I thought I knew something about the French Communist Party, but it turns out that I knew uh, e- extremely little about the French Communist Party. So I, as I was poking around, you know, a, a, there are many, many good histories of, of the PCF and, and a couple of uh, now old, but very good um, histories of French intellectuals in the PCF, David Cott being the best one, um, or among the best ones, um, from 1964. I, I discovered that 
for, for me, it was a discovery that the, that the very first official biography of Stalin was written by Henri Barbus, who I knew because of Le Feu, who was more widely known for his work as an anti, anti-war writer. Um, and that, that was his documentary, uh, documentary novel of the trenches, more or less, that won the Prix, Prix Goncourt in 1916. And, um, and so he, the fact that he, that I had never heard of this book, the fact that he, the fact that a French novelist was selected to write the first biography, I found that just endlessly um, interesting. And the more and more I dug around, the more I saw that indeed it, it, it the, there hadn't been a lot of coverage of Stalinism, specifically speaking, in all the scholarship done on the, on the, on the history of French intellectuals with the party. Um, so that was that was the initial step in getting into it. So it was, it was kind of a secure, a circuitous path, um, but one that I'm. I'm very glad that I discovered and that, that I, I'm going to continue on and we can talk about that later for my next project. But um, I, I, I'm not I'm, I, I have the feeling that I'm not I'm not I'm not done with the Communist Party yet. So, OK, great. Well, let's jump into your book. As you said, the first official biography of Joseph Stalin was written by the French novelist Henri Barbus, who is known for his novel Le Feu. Right. Could you give us a little background on Barbus and the mm-hmm. intellectual path that led him to write this biography? Beginning with his experience in World War One. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. So, and it's and it's one of the things that's so fascinating about about Bruce and about many of these people. The ways that was one of the things that I'm I find interesting is sort of the the ways how people end up getting to Stalinism. Um, and so, but, and they all had very different paths. But interestingly enough, each of each of these people were pro, that, that I focus on in the book were profoundly touched by the First World War in various ways. Um, so for Barbus, he enlisted um, sort of out of this desire to be, to, to contribute to the war effort. This was the war that was going to end all wars, the war that was going to bring social justice, um, the war that would lead to equality, um, and the war that would put an end to oligarchy and the, the, the you know, the crown, the, the et cetera, et cetera. Um, so he, he enlisted in 1914 as a 41-year-old man, which is, you know, uh, old at, that, at, at any time to join the infantry um and he he gets injured uh and he ends up as a convalescent um begins to write his anti-war novel Le Feu. and so he goes from having a a, a socialist but patri- he never joined the socialist party by the way which is an interesting fact but he goes from having a socialist and patriotic viewpoint on the war in other words he wants to fight as both a, as a as a human and as a frenchman is how he describes it to being completely against the war and thinking that the only way, and this takes him some time to get to, he references this at the end of the, of the, of Le Feu, that there's, that there could be a revolution coming that's bigger than the war itself that could sort of lead to um, the results that, that they had hoped for from the war, which is to, to, to bring, like I said, equality and justice. Um, but slowly after, so he publishes Le Feu in 1916, it gets a huge amount of attention. Um, it wins the Goncourt. It becomes one of the most widely read novels um, in the in the first decades of the 20th century. It gets uh, partially censored in France and banned in Germany. Uh, and 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 but for 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 many years after its publication, uh, the the fundamental ideas in Le Feu were were recirculated throughout the communist press. And so then, and Barbus became a hero for many many people um, because of this book. I mean, Einstein. I had a picture of Bob Bruce um, on his workstation next to his uh, a portrait of his of his deceased mother. Uh, Lenin read the book and referenced it in his writing. Um, so it was a major work. Um, and so 
after in the immediate post-war period, the thing that's interesting with 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 Barbus and also Romero, they go through Wilsonian phases, um, in part because of the fourteen points and the and the 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 ideals that some of the the American ideals which we still aspire to today, um, and towards you know democracy and freedom of peoples and things like that. Um, but by nineteen nineteen, he becomes completely disillusioned with Wilson, and then turns toward what he calls the North and the Great Revolution there, and becomes fascinated with Lenin. And then by 1923, he officially joins the PCF. Right. So Barbusse was a big proponent of Wilson's vision of internationalism. And he thought that the League of Nations was the best means of continuing the legacy of 1789. Yeah. And so he initially praised the French Revolution and denounced the Russian Revolution. But as you just said, that attitude changed. What happened? So that's a that's a good point, and thank you for um, interjecting that detail. So indeed, he uh, he he became extremely disillusioned with Western democracy as a whole, and began to think that the that the French Republic was hollow, that the ideals of the revolution had were had never been fully attained, um, and that there was no way to to find the the to achieve the ideals that Barbus aspired to through Western liberal democracy, and so. As news of the of the of the of the other great revolution, meaning the one in the, in the Bolshevik Revolution, begins to spread throughout Europe, Barbus becomes more and more enchanted with it, and um, and and he begins to refer to, to um, the, the then Russia it wasn't the Soviet Union at that point yet um, as the as as his patrie, um, his fatherland. Um, he was initially critical of the Bolsheviks. He called it a murderous split. Um, and he was critical of what, what he called their dictatorial measures. But but then he began to sort of adopt the, the very, and this is a perspective that he had, and then you could argue that he had this with the First World War as well, that, that the end justified the means. In other words, that whatever, it didn't matter how you got there, as long as you got to the to the end, which was, you know, justice and equality, you could be as violent as you wanted. And so that was, that's a Leninist notion that goes back to the Jacobins, but it's been, but for about abuse at this point, it was fundamentally Leninist. Okay. So in, then in 1927, Barbus makes his first trip to the Soviet Union, or was it known as the Soviet Union in 27? Yes, after 22. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So he makes his first trip to the USSR, which was the 10th anniversary of the October Revolution um, in 1927. Can you describe that trip for us? Yes. So he, he this is um, uh, what... One in a, in a series of many, many, many Potemkin visits, and this wasn't just for Barbus, and so it's the notion of a Potemkin village, in other words, that, that the decors that they set up for the visitors are, are not at all representative of reality. Um, and so he goes to... to um, to, to, to the Soviet Union in 1927 for the like you said the, the the 10th anniversary of October, and it's a hero's welcome. And he and and he had a number of goals for for making this trip. One of which was um, to help him with the public with with his various publications and to get his books translated into Russian. And um, so it was a it was a, a way of solidifying his um, his integration into the party into the party um, sphere but also a way to promote himself as a, as a writer. So he, and it was on that first visit that he first met Stalin. And it, it so it was, it was, a, it was a fundamentally important moment for Bobrius and for many others that, that, that was a, it was a moment of great public outreach that the 10th anniversary of the, 
uh, of the October Revolution. And it was very well documented in L'Humanité, which was the, the daily the daily newspaper of the French Communist Party, which I used was one of my, my favorite, and I became kind of addicted to reading it. My favorite resources for, I got addicted to the whole party media, and we can talk about that later if you want, but the, there's so much to find, and there's so much digitized by Gallica, by the, by the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, that it's just so readily accessible and, and so just endlessly interesting to me. But so it was, his, it was widely documented and it's fascinating to read the various testimonies. And, and he, and he bumped into Victor Serge, which was somebody that I worked on in my first book, um, who was a left oppositionist, who was a Trotskyist, um, who was persecuted by Stalin. Um, and this is before Serge was put into internal exile in the Soviet Union. And he, and, you know, Serge brought up to Barbus, you know, the fact that it, um, that, that, that the revolution wasn't, wasn't really being loyal to its ideals. Barbus sort of pretended not to hear him. Um, you know, and mm -hmm. clearly wasn't interested in, in, in getting all the facts. <laughs> I have questions for you about that later, uh -huh. uh, about the blind eye that he turned to, yeah. the truth of, yeah. of what was going on there. But <laughs> yeah. in, these Potemkin visits are fascinating to me. Um, what exactly was he shown? So Barbus was, okay, so he, it's interesting because he ends up doing what he called, what one would call research, I guess, but that was extremely limited to what the government was telling him. So he would get, I mean, his, these, the, so this is before the Stalin biography. He wrote a couple of books that are just chock full that are, that are, well, one in particular is unre is really, really unreadable. It's called Voici ce qu'on a fait de la Géorgie, what they have made out of Georgia, Soviet Georgia. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's never been translated into English and for good reason. It's just not a readable book, but it's, um, it, he tries to document how the ways in which the sort of the magical ways in which the, the Soviet Union has been transformed into this utopia where all, all races but one have been erased. You know, this is the Soviet race, and uh, he, he, he compares it. It's like a fa it's like a better version of America, and that there was this homogenizing force, like Americanization, but it's Sovietization, but it's better because it's not exploitative, and it's um, it, it, and, and, it, and it gets rid of religion, and um, uh, and and the and, and the government is determined to to respect all nationalities while making everyone Soviet. That was the one of the paradoxes of that. Um, of that policy. So he, you know, the, the example that I use in the book is that he, rather than talk to prisoners, he talked to the jailers. I mean, that's the, that's, I think is the, gives, gives it to you in a nutshell. It's, it's very limited primary sources. Um, and he was very much criticized for this um, in outside the party press um, because there was a, a high degree of polarization in the 20s and 30s in the French press and, and the, the French Communist Party affiliate and official organs were the, were at one clear left left far left pole but yeah so it's it, the duck it's not it's a it's a, a way of only paying attention to what the government is telling him and not not being curious for whatever reason about things that you know this blindness that 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 could be motivated by finances my i always suspected that it, and and also a desire for fame on the part of Barbus. I was always, I left my study of Barbus thinking that he was very much motivated by fame and um and and he, that was the, over, I, it's hard to, I don't have documentation that says that, but everything that I've looked at, I mean, I've read, you know, I've read most of his work. I did a ton of research on him and how he wrote his books. And, and I just got the overriding impression that he was extremely concerned with his career and his, his publications and wanting to make a name for himself. And he had kind of a, a mini cult of personality on his own. There were, there's, there's film of him sort of hectoring a crowd in, in, in Moscow from the, from the early 1930s. It's, it's, 
he's an interesting figure um, for right. not, and not for the best reasons, unfortunately. How did he actually come to write this official biography? So that's an interesting question as well. That's a complex. Uh, there was a, it was a really complex history that went into him writing the book. So initially, the way that his his secretary and I, I suspect his lover Annette Vidal, who traveled with him on all of his visits, described it was that. You know, he and Stalin were hanging around and the idea of this biography came up and Stalin pointed to Bob Bruce and there's the guy who needs to write. And so that is a completely apocryphal story, the way that it's told, um, um, you know, in this. And it was Bob Bruce who proposed the idea to Stalin and that Stalin loved the idea, blah, blah, blah. So that's that's just not accurate. So the, the archival sources and historians have, there, there, there were many false starts. Stalin initially resisted attempts to, to write his biography. There, they sought out other diff, other writers to do it. They asked Jeeb to do it. They asked Gorky. They asked uh, uh, Fuchtwanger, um, the, uh, the German novelist and writer, and they, and 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 even um, Sergei Kirov, who had been assassinated, and, and Bulgakov as well, who had been you know um, made miserable by, by by his contact with Stalin. And so it's it's. It's it's a very fraught history, but they eventually settle on Bob Bruce in part because he could be, be relied upon for um, you know to to do the work in the right way. And indeed, they the, so the, so the 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 documents that the, that I that I found in the Russian archives were amazing for this to see what Bob Bruce got a hold of, what he was sent, how they told him what you know what they weren't happy with, what they were happy with. Um, it, it is it, and. It's clear that he listened and he was he was malleable and it's it's uh it's he ends up being he ends up writing the cornerstone of the Stalin of the of the personality cult around Stalin. Right. How did it contribute to the creation of that cult of personality? So uh, in in part because of the way the the Soviet and the Russian and well the Soviet and the French is just just the, the broader um, common term the way information traveled in the common term. Broader, broadly speaking, because there was this constant cycle of reciprocal promotion of ideas and publications. So, and and uh, and there's this way of of constantly recycling um, um, uh, ideas and 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 ideological ideological points, and and especially around the characteristics of Stalin. So, this was a text that that became that that that, that I argue. I don't have documentary proof, but based on my close readings of of, of this text and the and the subsequent official biographies, served, I argue that it served as a prototype. I mean, there's, there's, it's just the parallels are unmistakable. And this, and Barbus's text was cited in a number of other French biographical statements on, on, you know, around Stalin. So it was, and it, it got huge promotion in the party press. It was timed to coincide, and this is another part of my argument, to co- the, the Stalin cult in France was launched in around Stalin's 55th birthday, whereas so with the five-year delay compared to the to, to the Soviet Union. So the, there's consensus among historians that the, that the Stalin cult was born in 1929, around Stalin's 50th birthday. And so there's a five-year delay. So at the end of 1934, 1935, you have this massive promotion, not only of Stalin's birthday, but also about Bruce's book. And so it just from then on, it just it just stayed. And Barbusa's reputation was remained impeccable through, through the end of the Stalinist era. So basically, you know, the early fifties um, in France, and he, you know, he was seen as a, as one of their one of their one of their founding fathers. And it's and it's and the thing that's interesting about that is that the Stalinist side of Barbusa's political commitment has had slowly been eroded in memory and scholarship as well. 
And so he, he had become remembered as sort of a father of the French left because of Le Feu, but, it, you know, people just for conveniently or not forgot about the Stalinist um, side. And that was one of the reasons I was so motivated to write this book was to, to recalibrate not just Bambus's, um, our understanding of Bambus closer to the truth, but for Romain Roland and Eluard, but, you know, Aragon was notorious uh, before my book, so it's, but, <laughs> but, but, but um, so it wasn't as necessary with him, but, um, but with the other three, I think it was, you know, that's, that I, I feel is one of the more, uh, more, uh, one of the newer the newer things that I bring to the to the conversation with this book. In addition to to writing Stalin, Barbus's political engagement served as a blueprint for communist Stalin activity in France for a generation. How so? So, um, so basically, Barbus, in terms of the way that he visited the Soviet Union, in terms of the way that he he was integrated into the party media sphere. In terms of the way that he was, he served as a as a figurehead. Um, in terms of and his uh, his contact with Stalin as well. And I, I can't remember if I said that already. But these these many his just his mode of engagement um, in terms of as a as a writer as a and as a public intellectual was imitated uh, by first and and there was sort of this baton that was passed from Barbus then to Romain Rolland. And then ultimately to Aragon, who became um, really central after Ronan. So Barbus dies in 1935. Ronan more or less slips into the role that Barbus had held that same year. And then after um, after the war and Ronan's death in 1944, he died in December 1944. Aragon had attained a lot of prestige as a result of his, you know, his, his heroism, frankly, during the war. The Second World War and the First, for that matter, um, and also his work as and his clandestine work in the resistance, and so Aragon became the central uh, writer, um, and and indeed to the in, in um, the central French communist writer um, to the point where he was a member of the Central Committee. Yeah, I mean it's amazing. I mean, I, I, you know, we can talk about Aragon, but but yeah, so Barbus served as was the the, the paragon, and he served as a model um, for for the rest of them. Uh, consciously or not, I think I think consciously so, frankly. Just to, to finish up with Barbus, you write that Stalin did not enjoy a long shelf life in the Soviet Union. No, <laughs> it did not. Yeah, that that's a, a very interesting uh, story. So, uh, and it's one of the things that, that is tricky about, it's this sort of Orwellian way of making people unpersons. And so Barbus praised a number of figures in the biography. So it's published in 1935 in France, and then published serially in Russia um, in 36, and then as a book in 36 as well. And by the time it's, you know, very shortly after its release in Russia, so many of the people that Barbus praised had become enemies of the people uh, and had been executed and, you know, subject to all sorts of humiliations and show trials. And so they had to take it off the shelves. And so um, even, and, you know, even in as late as 1948, for, for similar reasons, they wanted to translate it into the Kazakh language. Um, and the, the head of pro- the officials from the head of propaganda and agitation wrote that indeed they confirmed the same reasons why it didn't last in Russian and why it couldn't be translated. Barbus often mentions and quotes enemies of the people, such as you know Bubnov, Radek, Rinko, Rykov, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, it, um, it's it's one of these things, and especially when you compare. Uh, and I was shocked when I looked at this. I had never seen 
until I was doing the research for this, the transcripts of the show trials, I'd never really read them. And um, and just the, the abject ways in which these people that had been held up as, you know, exemplary Bolsheviks and revolutionaries by Barbus were then reduced to these abject and, and really just extremely sad um, confessions to try to save their lives and, you know, and to, to just to stay alive and try to remain loyal to the the Soviet Union, and they were not successful. So in your next chapter, you talk about uh, Romain Roland, uh-huh. and, and you say that his path to integration in the Soviet orbit was longer and more complex right. than that of Barbuse. Could you tell us a little bit about Roland and then talk about his intellectual trajectory? So, yeah, so Roland um, is a very interesting figure. And again, like Barbuse, um, was a dominant figure in French intellectual life in the early part of the 20th century. And so he becomes, he's widely known in the early part of the 20th century as for his first roman fleuve, which is, you know, roughly translated as a river novel, which is a multi-volume novel about one subject. And his first roman fleuve was published between 1904 and 1912, was called Jean Christophe. And and it's made, the main thrust of the book was sort of advocating for this, um, uh, transnational harmony is, uh, in Europe, especially between um, friend, France and Germany, and sort of advocating for this uh, harmony. And this was one of the things that that, 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 that dominated Roland's thinking um, for many, many years, was this idea that you could have balance and harmony and peace among various different peoples, um, to use, I guess, the language of the time. And um, and so by 1914, so he's living in Switzerland, and he writes, and he become he's against the war. And so at a very, at a highly nationalist moment, so this is early during the Battle of the Marne, the first Battle of the Marne in 1914, he writes uh, an essay called Au-dessus de la Mêlée, which translates as Above the Battle, or just translated as Above the Battle. Um, and it says it's banned in France. It doesn't, they're not allowed to publish it in France. Um, and it earns him, you know, state censorship for the next year or so through, through I think, the end of 1915. And he becomes known across Europe as an anti-war writer, as somebody who advocates for internationalism and peace and somebody who sees the dangers of nationalism, the dangers of, of taking patriotic ideals and twisting them um, for power or for imperialism or for whatever reason. And after the war, um, he, you know, he, he's, a, he, he's somewhat of an activist during the war. He helps, he works with the, with the, the Red Cross, um, helps political prisoners and things like that. And writes a number of very powerful essays, by the way, um, in the same phase um, and manifestos and whatnot. So he's integrated. He's, he's very much a, a by de- he's one of the, extremely active public intellectuals at this time, just like Barbus was, both of them sort of in the Zola mold, especially for Barbus, whose hero was indeed Emile Zola. And one of the cliches around Barbus is that he's the Zola of the trenches. And when I, I say that sort of in that way, because it, 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 it just dismisses the whole Stalin side of this engagement. But anyway, we, um, so anyway, so, so with Roland, um, he becomes... He's not as seduced by, he's indeed resistant to, just like Barbus was initially, he, he becomes appalled by what he sees in Russia um, in terms of the dictatorial behavior, the, the, the budding police state, the methods of the Bolsheviks. And um, Barbus was very much the opposite of Barbus in that the means did not justify the end. Indeed, the means for Barbus were more important than the end because he thought the means were more had a more durable and lasting effect on the way a political body would function after that end was attained. So violence was not, at this phase in his career, and immediately after the war, violence was not seen as a viable option for, for Roland. And he 
indeed, and you could probably hear Gandhi in the background here, he indeed espoused Gandhian notions of non-resistance, non-violence, non-acceptation, ahimsa um, is what they, you know, the, 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 the term that they use in India for that concept. And, um, and so Rollo becomes the, 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 the most prominent Western advocate for Gandhian ideals um, in the 1920s. And he writes uh, a, a very important biography of, of Gandhi. Uh, in 19, it's published in 1924, based on some essays that he had previously published, and um, and rejects the dictators of Moscow in that very book. And 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 then in this same phase, actually earlier in the 1920s, before the publication of the Gandhi biography, Barbus and Roland have a debate, um, a public debate around the best ways of of achieving revolutionary ideals or achieving equality or achieving whatever end they all agree on that, that society needs to be better. Democracy has become stale. The West is, is no longer, you know, functional. Um, it's nationalist, it's imperialist, it's greedy, it's corrupt. And, um, and they disagree, like I said, on the, the, the question of violence and, and ends versus the means and how to get there. And, and um, it's an important debate. And one, it's one that, that was, that's widely, the, that aspect of both of their histories has not been forgotten. That's been, that's widely known. But again, what happens later is in most scholarship becomes extremely vague with both of them. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to ended up following up on both of these two writers. And because they became both of them the most prominent, um, they were the first two most prominent intellectuals affiliated with the party. So, so after the, after, during, okay, so the Gandhian phase for, for Roland lasts a very long time. It, it's, it's a question of degree for him. And, and again, in 1927, Roland begins to become seduced by the ideals of the Soviet Union and this idea of Soviet exceptionalism, the idea that they're, that the USSR indeed is trying to achieve its ideals and indeed is a legitimate way of attaining peace. And, and this coincides with the rise of fascism in Italy and the fact that, that, that Roland is deeply disturbed by fascism and then becomes increasingly, when Hitler comes to power, um, by then Roland is very much um, committed to and indeed abandons his his reservations around violence, um, thinking that, and something that he says in one of his texts is that it's individual conscientious objectors may save their souls, but, you know, he became convinced that armed, armed military conflict was the only way to, to fight fascism and, and national socialism. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. Yeah, it's such a, a stark turn from that Gandhian nonviolence to an embrace of Soviet authoritarianism. Yeah. yeah, you even have a quote where he said that the Soviet leaders had to dirty their hands. We have, <laughs> we have no right to act right. like we are disgusted. Um, then you, yeah, you yeah. want to say that the new principles that he adopted as part of this turnaround were fundamental to his play entitled Robespierre, which is what I, I would like to talk about next. And, and the, the play was written in 1939 when France was celebrating the sesquicentennial of the French Revolution. Could you talk about the, the context of that celebration in 1939? Like you said, it's the sesquicentennial of the of the of 1789. So 150 years later, they 
so this is a history that I found. And I, when I had initially um, begun my investigation into Roland, I was going to study his second roman fleuve, which is called L'âme Enchantée. In English, it translates as The Soul Enchanted. And this is this was published in the late 20s and the early 1930s. That shows, and the story that that shows, this is just as a sidebar because I think it's interesting um, before I get into to Robespierre. And I'll, this is to explain how I got to Robespierre. Um, in the late 20s and early 1930s, it shows basically the, the protagonist of this Juan Fleuve moves from sort of Gandhian ideals to a very deep sense of anti-fascism, somebody who's willing to tolerate the means of the Russian Revolution. So it te- that multi-volume novel effectively tells the story of Roland's own transformation. So as I was digging around, I, I discovered that Roland... Um, wrote a series of plays on the revolution and that have not been widely studied in part because they're, they're not very, many of them are not very readable. They were never really put on stage or to any great extent. Um, I mean, they all had some exposure, but nothing huge. And as I was just familiarizing myself with his career, I, and, and looking again, looking at the, at the archives and I, and I got to this and I think it was through Humanité that I discovered because I had no idea that there was the sesquicentennial celebration of the revolution. I, you know, one thing one hears about 1889 and, and 1989. And so the reason is because, you know, 1939 was the, was the apogee of the, of the gravest, you know, geopolitical crisis um, that Europe had seen in, in, in the 20th century. And so, and it indeed curtailed the celebrations around literally, I mean, they had, they ended up canceling some events around the, around the celebration of the revolution. So the, there was not a lot of energy devoted to the celebration at the time. Um, they, uh, the, the most ambitious events were, were, were scuttled in favor of having, you know, several smaller events, you know, parades and mainly parades actually. Um, and, 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 and Roland, um, in preparation for this event ends up writing a book that he had been intending to write for many years, um, to finish his, um, his series of plays on the revolution, because he, for a long time, he considered Robespierre to be the greatest man of the of the French Revolution who had not received his historical due, and that was even before he became a Stalinist, uh, and decides to write his play Robespierre. So it's the sequel to his Danton, but it happens to be written 40 years later. And so this play is written in for a 1930s, a late 1930s audience. So, he, so Roland tells the story of Robespierre through the lens of a philo-Soviet pro-Stalinist political viewpoint. And so Robespierre in many ways serves as a stand-in for Stalin, a man who sacrifices himself for the revolution, who puts the will of the people above all, um, who is pure in his revolutionary ideals, and and whose determination to see those ideals realized leads him into problematic directions here and there, so he's able to cut to reference the contradictions in, in Soviet communism, but at the same time justify them by saying that, you know, without Robespierre, the revolution is dead. And indeed, when Robespierre is guillotined at the end of the story, counter-revolutionaries take over, the revolution is put to an end and the republic dies. So looking at the historical figure of Robespierre, I've always been intrigued by him. He is fascinating and, of course, very polarizing. How is he generally understood by historians? Like you said, it's a it's a, a very well. It's a it's a polarized uh, interpretation of Robespierre. So, according to many, uh, according to the to the various perspectives of historians, the, uh, Robespierre has been a malleable figure. So, in the nineteenth century, when when liberalism was more dominant in French historical circles, 
Danton was the great figure, and so which is reflected in, in official monuments of the, the famous statue in in Paris uh, outside the movie theater where people meet. Um, and that was that was that statue was erected in, in 1889 uh, for the for the centennial of the of the of the of the, of the revolution. And but by the times, um, sort of socialist historiography begins to take off um, in the early decades of the of the 20th century. Then you have a rehabilitation of Robespierre that is done in what is known as the the, the Mathieu's school of thought, uh, where he was seen, where Mathieu's interpreted him as a um, as being unfairly demonized as a dictator. He was the Mathieu's was the the founder in 1907 of the Société des Études Robespierristes um, and an editor and a frequent contributor to the to the journal. And so he was writing against the which was the mainstream view that Danton, that Danton was the primary figure figure and hero of the revolution. And so Mathieu wanted to upend what he described as the anti-Robespierre legend, uh, that he was responsible for the terror, that he was a dictator, uh, that he was sent to the, and he wanted to point out that he was a victim of injustice, that he was sent to the guillotine with sans jugement, without adjudication. And Robespierre, and Roland, excuse me, uh, adopts the Mathieu's point of view and, and has read Mathieu's references and him, references him in the afterword of the play. And makes it clear that, that he wants to rehabilitate the image of Robespierre. Right. And so how does the play serve as a rehabilitation of Robespierre? And how is it a justification of Stalin's authoritarian rule? Because some literary critics read it a different way. They do. Um, the, the, the majority of critics in a, uh, read it as, a, as an anti-Stalinist play. And that's because the majority of Roland critics have been resistant to the idea and have obfuscated the idea that Roland indeed became a Stalinist. And so Roland's Stalinism is a little complicated because, and one has to recognize this, that he, in private, he expressed a number of reservations, not uniformly, but that there were some reservations that he did express, but there were other times in private that he did think, say that in public he thought he was doing the right thing. But then we can get into that a little bit later. But um, I am going against the grain here, and I think I'm, and I'm, I, I, I believe that I'm right because the, because of the way that because of the way that the um, and I don't mean that in a smug way. It's just because of the way that the play was was received and promoted in the Communist Party press in France. It was promoted as a Stalinist work, as a doctrinal work, and the party when 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 one is familiar with the way the party um, advocates things in their press, they don't go. They, there's no deviation from the party line, especially in the official publications. So they would not have promoted it if they didn't. If the text was not intended to be um, a Stalinist work, the main the main way, um, sort of the, the 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 discursive arc of the play is that um, Robespierre is a martyr uh, who has been put in the position of having to behave in problematic ways because he is so determined to sacrifice himself uh, and his own, um, his friends uh, and, and including Danton uh, to sacrifice them for a revolutionary ideal. And so while Robespierre and his allies may be engaged and are indeed engaged in things that are not so great in the play, Robespierre's enemies are engaged in absolute perfidy. They are never, there's never any room to, to interpret them in a positive way. So, Again, like I said, it's a way of referencing the contradictions in the in Soviet politics, but it's but it's a way of ultimately justifying them because Robespierre is seen as the hero, and when he dies, the revolution, like I said earlier, the revolution is over and the republic dies. 
Um, and so it's, it's a way of showing that Robespierre is essential to the revolution, just like Stalin is. And Robespierre's commitment to democracy and the will of the people is as profound as Stalin's commitment to democracy and the people. And, and so this was the, the, the equivalence of and the, the continuity between Robespierre and Lenin and Stalin was articulated not only in this work. That's the other piece of evidence that I, that I, that I highlight in the chapter. This was uh, done in commemorative texts written by Roland himself and also um, in various elements of the party press, where you see at the same time when they were celebrating the French Revolution, um, and L'Humanité had a, had a, you know, an almost daily series on the front page of the paper. It's, it's kind of like, the funny thing about L'Humanité is they have, it's a party line, you know, authoritarian communist journal, but it's it's also the dream of, of professors, you know, to have an intellectual newspaper, but they have to be, you know, extremely twisted with their politics. So, so they, they, they promote their vision of historiography. There's an official historiography of the party. And, um, and Robespierre is the only person, uh, the only revolutionary figure who appears three times on the front page of the paper in 1939 and is touted as, you know, the greatest man of the French Revolution. So Renault was, so I think to, to read this, this play any other way as being as you know chiming and being consonant with overall party discourse around Robespierre and what he represents to and what Stalin and how Stalin and Lenin and how you know Lenin referred to uh, Robespierre as a as a Bolshevik avant la lettre um, and Stalin was viewed you know was promoted and viewed as and saw himself as the continuer of Lenin Stalin in many ways is the best Leninist uh, and the most powerful Leninist and it's something that you know it's a it's a the distinction that we make between Leninism and Stalinism is, is false in many ways, and and it's something that Soviet dissidents were very happy to point out in the in the nineteen sixties and seventies that it was to, to, to make the distinction is meaningless essentially. So th- there's there's a continuity there that that Robespierre was tapped that Roland. I keep, I'm, you know, it's funny when I was editing the book, I made that mistake <laughs> mixing up Roland's name and Robespierre's, uh, but the, it's a continuity that that, that Roland highlighted and that was in harmony with party discourse and party historiography. So it, it's interesting to me that that Robespierre, the play, was published in 1939, which was the same year as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Yes. Yeah. 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 How did this agreement affect Roland? Okay. Roland, so the pact is signed August 23rd, 1939. And it's, it is an absolute moment of complete and total shock both, you know, across Europe, but especially in France. I mean, I, I know the French context better, best, I should say. That. So in terms of the, across the media in France. So I've, I've done a lot of research on um, the way the pact was received across the entire spectrum of the French party press. And it was, I mean, widespread shock uh, and dismay. And so Roland kept his reaction private. Um, which is interesting, and and it's one of the things that I find uh, most disappointing about um, about Roland is that he he was very much against the pact. He made a number of moves to distance himself from the party. He gave up rights to his works in the Soviet Union. He left the the Comité France Urs, um, which was sort of a friendship society, you know, between France and the USSR. 
he expressed in his journals just absolute dismay and disappointment and disgust uh, with the fact that Stalin could shake the hands of the, the executioners of liberty, because there's that famous picture of Stalin that was circulated widely in the French press, of Stalin shaking hands with um, von Ribbentrop, who's, you know, Hitler's foreign minister. So uh, Roland kept his reaction private. The sole thing that you see in public is that Roland writes a, an editor, a letter to the, a public letter to to the French prime minister saying that he stands with democracy. Okay. And so, that, and so that in many ways is, was a, was a double gesture on the part of Roland. And again, another disappointing one because he, it allowed him wiggle room to say that he was not criticizing the Soviet union because within party circles, the Soviet union was always held up as a paragon for democracy. Um, and so he kept it quiet. And then, so during the Nazi occupation period, his, you know, he, he keeps voluminous journals as he always did. But by 1934, and so this is after Stalingrad, after, you know, the Soviet Union ends up being on the right side against the Nazis. Um, Roland goes back to the party fold. He gets seduced again. They make a huge effort to bring him back and as a friend of the Soviet Union. Um, and they try to, after his death, you know, there's the well at, at his funeral. They fly they fly a hammer and sickle flag above his coffin. And after his death, by Aragon, who now be, takes up the takes the baton as the as the primary French intellectual affiliate with the party, begins a campaign to get uh, Roland into the Pantheon, which fails. And so, one of the reasons that some of his biographers think that Roland was reluctant to criticize the Soviet Union is because his stepson was in Moscow at the time and he didn't want to put his life at risk and, and one of course can understand that. But, um, but again, that's conjecture. And I mean, it, it's to some extent, I mean, you know, there's the, the, the way that he described it. And if, if, if Roland is going to be a public intellectual and be, you know, loyal to certain ideals, one would hope that he would be able to transcend his own personal situation, but he did not. And, you know, one can judge him or not for that. I mean, it, it's hard. Roland is the person in this book that I have the most empathy for, I have to say. I would like to talk about Andre Gide as a counterexample um, because he, like many other intellectuals, took these these Potemkin visits uh, and came home to renounce their support for the Soviet Union and for Stalin. And um, Gide, as you write, wrote a travelogue based on his trip, and he was vilified by the party press. And so what sets Gide apart? How do you explain the discrepancy between his writings in Barbus and Roland. So Gide's book is published. And in many ways, the thing that's interesting is that, is that of course, everyone is writing within the same context here. And in, in France, in the 1920s and 30s, there are some 200 travelogues published, Soviet travelogues published in French, in France, you know, documenting what one sees as the truth of the Soviet experiment. And so this was highly polarized. So either the Soviet Union is a utopia or it's hell on earth and it's, you know, not represent, it's a, it's a betrayal of revolutionary and uh, socialist ideals. Okay. There's not a whole lot of room in the middle. And so Roland and Barbus effectively end up being paragons of the side of, you know, that, that the Soviet Union is a utopia. Gide, in as, as late as night, so Gide was, was never a member of the of the PCF, but he was one of the affiliated intellectuals. And his and it's interesting to note, and this is another thing that one learns when re, when one delves into the party press to see the things that they end up the the, the the writers how they promote various writers. And one of Gide's famous works, Les Caves du Vatican, was serialized in L'Humanité. And and they're very careful 
they were very careful with with the works and the writers that they serialized. So they liked Gide. Gide liked them. Gide, at one point in 1932, said that he would give up his life for the Soviet Union to succeed. So he's a high degree of passion. He wrote that in his journals. So Gide, in 1936, makes a trip to the Soviet Union, and they try to make it a Potemkin visit, and he ends up really not wanting to be minded on the visit. They had minders, you know, watching, making sure that they would only, that people would only see certain things. They had a special train car. Um, they had to get special permission to get the separating doors removed so they could sort of see how real people lived. Uh, they take him on, on, on visits to, you know, public theaters and kindergartens and factories. And he, but he, what he really, he ends up sort of trying to escape that bubble that they put him in. Uh, and he ends up documenting, in fact, what he saw is that, that there's a great deal of poverty, that there's that, that goods and food are in severe shortage, that capitalism ends up, in spite of his own anti-capitalism, capitalism is, he deems better for, he says, is better for diversity and quality of products. He's, he, he's suspicious of the statistics that are given to him. He's, he, he thinks that he notices inequality among the collective farms. Um, he notices that there's a high degree of conformity, uh, intellectual and otherwise, in the Soviet Union. He sees the people as being kept in ignorance around what's going on outside the Soviet Union. They think everything outside the Soviet Union is horrible, and you know, like they're the only places that have fun- they're the only places that have functioning schools and things like that. He also sees signs of a nascent petite. But, you know, petite bourgeoisie, petite bourgeoisie. So signs that are disturbing him. And he also happens to witness the cult of personality around Stalin. He's disturbed that his image is everywhere, that every room has its portrait of him where the icon used to be, the, you know, the, the religious icon. That people have to refer to him in obsequious terms, like he is the, you know, instead of just saying you, people would have to say you, you know, leader of all workers, leader of peoples, master of peoples. You see, he calls Stalin a dictator. And so he he gives an honest account. And what he says, and this is what I think is so interesting in the, because I'm testimony, I'm fascinated by testimony as a genre. And he says early on in the text that it's, that people who are witnessing testimonies are not, or who are writing testimonies are, are not serving the Soviet Union by only expressing uh, their love for the Soviet Union. And then he says that, that, uh, that, that, it often that it's too often in this polarized environment with all these travelogues being published too often the truth of the soviet union is said with hate and love of the soviet union and lies around the soviet union are said with love and so he wants to give a, 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 a an honest as he sees it depiction of how life is in the soviet union and to give tough love and to hope that his critiques can can help it reform itself but he he writes uh uh, uh what ends up being a seismic uh, text um, in this context, and then he, and then he, you know, he's banned, you know, from the by from the party. He's vilified. Romain Roland writes a response. The book is criticized, you know, as superficial and false and shallow. And 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 then Gide writes a follow up book, and this one is is much less well known, called Retouche à mon retour de l'Urs, which translates roughly as either afterthoughts or amendments to my. My book, my 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 return from the USSR, uh, and and in that book he rebuts directly um, people who he deemed were lying about the Soviet Union, and he singles out in particular Romain Roland and Barbus, despite the fact that Barbus had been dead already for two years, but he decides to single him out anyway. So, <laughs> so so that shows again how how important Barbus was, even after his death. Uh, outside the party, he was still seen as somebody who had to be reckoned with. And he again, he references in this I referenced earlier, the fact that people could get rich in the Soviet Union. They'd have to, you know, all the money is paid in rubles, which is not which had, was not 
uh, I believe at that time was not um, exchangeable. Um, so, you know, you could be rich in rubles and sell, you know, 400,000 of your books, which he was told, by the way, Jeep, uh, in the Soviet Union, one of, one of Eliau's collections of poetry sold 10,000 copies in one hour. You know, there, there was a financial aspect to this that, that, that I think we, I don't want to exaggerate and I don't want to make it simplify it either because it was much, that was, that was part of it, no question. So I wish we had enough time to talk about Louis Aragon, Paul Eluard, um, because they're fascinating uh-huh. figures. But what I would like to do is end on contemporary politics. And um, your book helps us understand how these writers, intellectuals, politicians, how they promote authoritarian tactics and regimes and movements. And unfortunately, your analysis is still relevant in the 21st century. So um, could you talk a little bit about recent developments in global politics? Uh, Unfortunately, like you said, we're in a phase where illiberal politics, both in the West and the former Eastern Bloc, um, have are experiencing a resurgence. And obviously the most disappointing, um, at least for me, is the fact that the United States isn't uh, in a position where it's defending democracy, which it is its, at least in the 20th century was its traditional role. But um, so Marine Le Pen in the now what's called the um, Rassemblement National, they changed their name from the Front National, uh, in many ways is in the same authoritarian uh, and philo Russian philo Putin uh, orbit as Donald Trump. And so they were, before, when she was trying to become elected president, and we're incredibly lucky for the survival of the EU, for at least for the moment, that Macron won uh, that election and that she's been relegated to an opposition, although a very vocal and prominent one. And there's this, you know, this, this, this new Putin directed um, anti democratic, anti West, anti EU anti-NATO impulse that's surfacing um, both in France and the United States and elsewhere. You have it in Poland, you have it in Hungary, you have it. And it's just, it's, it's incredibly, um, um, it's still disturbing. Um, the, the, the fact that things took this turn, especially in the United States. And, but, but, but so in, in, indeed in 20, and, and so in, in the French context you have, and this was the first inkling that I got of it in the French context because I've been following, I discovered Sputnik, which is the, the web, um, internet news agency, which is common, which is Kremlin directed, um, just like Russia today. Um, it's a it's a propaganda organ, and I had been following I because I had had a uh, I just I they don't do it anymore, and I, for good reason. But I, I had Google News alerts set up for a few keywords, among them Stalin and Stalinism, both in French and in English. And so all of a sudden, I was getting into, into my feed these. Things from Sputnik, both in French and in English. You know, I started digging around, and it turns out they they end up promoting Stalinist rhetoric and Stalinist Stalinist visions of history, the Stalinist interpretation of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and so and among other things. And alongside that, they're promoting you know Marine Le Pen and Donald Trump and other things, and they're also minimizing um, the Gulag and 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 so there were there were signs before the 2016 election that this was happening. It's you know in, in retrospect, it seems clear as day, but it's I saw signs of it before all this came to a head on a on a on an international level, and it's and and it's and unfortunately, there's we don't see any sign of it um, abating right now because the, the disinformation campaigns that we've seen in, in 
that are they they the, the Russians did indeed try to do the same thing to Macron that they did to Hillary Clinton, but the Macron campaign was much smarter in dealing with um, them. They, they they planted false documents in their in their um, among their real documents that ended up getting hacked. So they could tell they were like you know they could they could tell what, what had been hacked and you know they, they knew when when the fake stuff came out that that they were that they were indeed being targeted. So, you know, it's unfortunately Stalin, Stalin has, has seen a rehabilitation in contemporary Russia as Putin has consolidated his power and has become more authoritarian. Um, and, he, and indeed, in, the, in public opinion polls in, in, in Russia, Stalin has seen a steady rise since the early 2000s. And he's affiliated most of all with his role as in the Great Patriotic War, in World War II, and defending the fatherland. And so there's, a, there's increasing... Government-sponsored fabrication of busts, staging socialist realist art exhibits. You know, Stalin is depicted as generalissimo, and Putin, in many ways, has adopted some of the aspects of the Stalin cult by being, you know, a man of nature, um, somebody who's connected with the people, um, someone who's someone who incarnates state power. Now, there you go. I feel like there's such a sense of urgency to your book, given the situation that we find ourselves in today. Um, it's a fascinating study, Thanks. and I hope everyone checks it out. Thank so, you. Andrew, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you so much. It was it was really a pleasure and, and, and I'm delighted to be able to be given the opportunity. Thank you. Sure. We've been talking with Andrew Sobinet about his new book, Generation Stalin, French Writers, The Fatherland, and the Cult of Personality. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. <laughs>